by General Smedley Butler, born in Westchester, Pennsylvania, July 30th, 1881, educated at the Haverford School here outside of Philadelphia. He was awarded two Congressional Medals of Honor. This is a Marine combat veteran, highly decorated senior general who spoke out against what was going on with the war. And he did it in this famous speech, which was later turned into a book, it's available uh, in the open domain, which is how I'm able to provide it to you today. Obviously, not my own content. I'm sharing this with you as a bonus content, hoping that my style of oration will bring a little something to it that you might enjoy. But you could also go listen to Smedley Butler's words as well. We'll probably put that out on a blog post or something like that. But I'm also adding some commentary to bring this around and, uh, and not only just make it interesting, but make it relevant today, because this guy was like a, a fortune teller as he looked ahead almost 100 years ago. And we see these problems not only remain the same, they've gotten much worse. And we're going to talk about some of the impact that this has on all of us, really. Let me give you a quick summary, just so you're up to date where we're at as we get into chapter number four. Chapter number one, he says, war is a racket. It's not what you think. These wars are not being fought for the reasons you're being told. And even if you don't want to believe that, look at the simple math. It's costing you a fortune, and a lot of money is going into the hands of just a few people. Everybody else is not benefiting from this. Then he says, who's making this money? Let's follow the money. And he gives specific examples from that time. Now, it's not the same today. It's a little bit different, but it's not completely different. Then he talks about who pays the price the special emphasis on the veterans. And he talks about what they endure, and he does a really good job of describing that, I believe. Chapter 3 was a powerful, powerful chapter. And that leads us to chapter number 4, How to Smash This Racket. This is War is a Racket by Major General Smedley Butler, narrated by me, Christopher Scott Kunkel, with commentary by Christopher Scott Kunkel. Here we go. Chapter four, how to smash this racket. Well, it's a racket, all right. A few profit and the many pay, but there is a way to stop it. You can't end it by disarmament conferences. You can't eliminate it by peace parlays at Geneva. Well-meaning but impractical groups can't wipe it out by resolutions. It can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. The only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. One month before the government can conscript the young men of the nation, it must conscript capital and industry and labor. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our munitions makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all the other things that provide profit and wartime, as well as the bankers and the speculators, be conscripted to get $30 a month the same wage as the lads in the trenches get. Let the workers in all these plants get the same wages. All the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers, 
Yes, and all generals and all admirals and all officers and all politicians and all government office holders, everyone in the nation be restricted to a total monthly income not to exceed that paid to the soldier in the trenches. Let all these kings and tycoons and masters of business and all those workers in industry and our senators and governors and majors pay half their $30 wage to their families and pay war risk insurance and buy liberty bonds. Why shouldn't they? They aren't running any risk of being killed or having their bodies mangled or their minds shattered. They aren't sleeping in muddy trenches. They aren't hungry. The soldiers are. Give capital and industry and labor 30 days to think it over, and you'll find by that time there will be no war. That will smash the war racket, that and nothing else. Maybe I'm a little too optimistic. Capital still has some say, so capital won't permit the taking of profit out of war until the people, those who do the suffering and still pay the price, make up their minds that those who elect to office shall do their bidding and not of the profiteers. Another step necessary in this fight to smash the war racket is the limited plebiscite to determine whether a war should be declared. A plebiscite not of all the voters, but merely of those who would be called upon to do the fighting and dying. It wouldn't be very much sense in having a 76-year-old president of a munitions factory or the flat-footed head of an international banking firm or the cross-eyed manager of a uniform manufacturing plant all of whom see visions of tremendous profits in the event of the war, voting on whether or not the nation should go to war. They never would be called upon to shoulder arms, to sleep in a trench, and to be shot. Only those would be called upon to risk their lives to their country should have the privilege of voting to determine whether the nation should go to war. There is ample precedent for restricting the voting to those affected. Many of the states have restriction on those permitted to vote. In most, it is necessary to be able to read and write before you may vote. In some, you must own property. It would be a simple matter each year for the men coming of military age to register in their communities as they did in the draft during the World War and be examined physically. Those who could pass and would be therefore called upon to bear arms in the event of a war would be eligible to vote in a limited plebiscite. They should be the ones to have the power to decide, and not a Congress, few of whose members are within the age limit, and fewer still of whom are in physical condition to bear arms. Only those who must suffer should have the right to vote. The third step in the business of smashing the war racket is to make certain that our military forces are truly forces for defense only. At each session of Congress, the question of further naval appropriations comes up. The swivel chair admirals of Washington, there's always a lot of them, are very adroit lobbyists, and they are smart. They don't shout that we need a lot of battleships to war on this nation or that nation. Oh, no. First of all, they let it be known that America is menaced by a great naval power. Almost any day, these admirals will tell you the great fleet of the supposed enemy will strike down and suddenly annihilate 125 million people just like that. Then they begin to cry for a larger navy. For what? To fight the enemy. Oh my, no, no. For defense purposes only. Then incidentally, they announce maneuvers in the Pacific for defense. Uh Uh-huh. The Pacific is a great big ocean. We have a tremendous coastline on the Pacific. Will the maneuvers be off the coast two or three hundred miles? Oh no. 
The maneuvers will be 2,000, yes, perhaps even 3,500 miles off the coast. The Japanese, a proud people, of course, will be pleased beyond expression to see the United States fleet so close to Nippon's shores, even as pleased would be the residents of California, where they did dimly concern through the morning mist, the Japanese fleet playing at war games off of Los Angeles. The ships of our Navy, it can be seen, should be specifically limited by law to within 200 miles of our coastline. Had that been the law in 1898, the Maine would have never gone to Havana Harbor. She never would have been blown up. There would have been no war with Spain with its attendant loss of life. 200 miles is ample in the opinion of experts for defense purposes. Our nation cannot start an offensive war if its ships can't go further than 200 miles from the coastline. Planes might be permitted to go as far as 500 miles from the coast for purposes of reconnaissance, and the Army should never leave the territorial limits of our nation. To summarize, three steps must be taken to smash the war record. One, we must take the profit out of war. Two, we must permit the youth of the land who would bear arms to decide whether or not there should be war. And three, we must limit our military forces to home defense purposes only. This is really an amazing dissertation. And I just cannot emphasize enough the person that this is coming from, a decorated Marine general, saying all these things. Why don't we have anybody taking up the case for any of this today? Now, I don't know that I completely agree with how he would approach this, but it's a fascinating approach all the same. I think I would absolutely agree with the defensive approach only. Wouldn't that in itself take care of most of the rest of the problems? I believe it would, at least for the most part. We're going to be coming back with the final chapter, chapter 5. You don't want to miss it. To hell with war. See you there.